Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. It's just after New Year's, 1892. You're in what seems like the middle of nowhere, the flat, empty Paiute territory in northwestern Nevada in the dead of winter, after an unusually heavy snowfall. Looking out around you, you see the vast expanses of nothing except sage brushes mounded with snow. Ahead, as you and your small group of white and Indian men travels towards a settlement called Pine Grove, the mountains are lit brightly with sun and the sky above is blue. It seems like a positive sign as you move slowly towards your goal, finding the mysterious Paiute prophet known as Jack Wilson. For years, newspapers all over the United States have shared breathless accounts of the mysterious Jack Wilson. Some say that he purports to be a messiah, even an Indian Jesus Christ, with the power to raise generations of Indians from the dead, restoring the ancient populations to their former glory. His message inspired tribes across the West, from the Arapaho to the Sioux, to dance wildly in circles and gather in large, ominous numbers. And after the dance led to last year's bloodshed, it seems clear to most Americans that it was Jack Wilson who was the dangerous figure behind the aggression of the Western tribes. Finally, just as you're starting to wonder whether you're lost and doomed to wander in the isolation and the cold, you see rising smoke in a circle of wiki-ups. Your guide ushers you into one, a small circular lodge of rushes laid out over a pole framework with an open hole at the top, through which smoke and sparks float from a large central fire. Around the fire are a young man and woman, a small boy, and a baby. The man doesn't seem like a threat at all. He's dressed in simple American-style clothing and is gentle with his children. This is the man who sparked the explosive new Indian religion and set into motion the events on the Pine Ridge Reservation? Was this the prophet who preached the ghost dance religion? This is how ethnologist James Mooney met the man many knew as Jack Wilson, the Paiute prophet Wovica. Mooney had traveled from Washington, D.C. on an anthropological mission funded by the Bureau of Ethnology, an organization that functioned as the anthropological research arm of the Department of the Interior and the Smithsonian Institution. Mooney's interview with Wovica, combined with his months of interviews and research into the history, performance, and theology of the ghost dance, was published in 1896 as a report to the Secretary of the Smithsonian, and later as the Ghost Dance Religion and Sioux Outbreak of 1890. Mooney set out not only to record the culture of the ghost dance, but to try to understand it. Eastern newspapers reported Indian uprisings and apocalyptic visions, but what did adherents to the new religion really believe? For this installment of our series on radical religions, we turn to the ghost dance religion, the faith that offered hope to Indians and inspired irrational fears in whites, and which is inextricably tied to the massacre that became the symbolic end of the Indian Wars, Wounded Knee. I'm Sarah. And I'm Elizabeth. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. We 
want to give a big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, particularly our Augur and Excavator level patrons. A very special thanks to Danielle, Lauren, Christopher, Colin, Maggie, and Peggy. Your generosity will go down in history. Listener, if you are not yet a patron, you can be. Just go to patreon.com backslash digpodcast to learn more. All right, I want to start with a note about terminology. Throughout the episode, we're going to use the term Indian to refer to indigenous or Native Americans. And I'm choosing to do this in part because most of the people who I know who are Native American do use the word Indian to describe themselves. But also, I'm following the example set by historian Lewis Warren, whose work I'm leaning very heavily on in this episode. Um, And he explains his choice to use the term Indian by saying that Indians were not citizens of the United States nor were there any concrete plans to make them citizens um, at the time of the ghost dance. And importantly, most Indians did not want to become citizens. So neither Americans nor Indians themselves perceived them as American. On the other hand, Warren also makes a point to refer to Americans as Americans instead of whites. Um, or something else, because he makes the point that there was a wide variety of people, you know, almost exclusively men, involved in fighting and governing Indians. And while they were not necessarily all white, they were all members of the American state and were or had the potential to become citizens. So I thought that I thought that that was a really um, important note that he says right from the beginning of his book, this kind of distinction um, between you know Indian and American. Uh, We might also use the terms Lakota and Sioux interchangeably. Um, It's very similar to the difference between Haudenosaunee and Iroquois that we've talked about many times on the the podcast before. Um, Lakota is the tribe's own name for itself, and Sioux is the name that they were designated by the French. But um, often those two terms show up in um, the even in the primary documents and in, in historians work today. So sometimes they will slip out, you know, interchangeably. Finally, we should note that some tribes uh, that we're going to discuss have multiple bands. For instance, the Lakota um, have many bands, including the Ogallala, the Hunkpapa, and the Minikanju, who we're going to refer to. Um, So unless the differentiation of which band is important, and sometimes it is, um, I will usually or we will usually just be referring to them by their overarching name, mostly because this is how they usually appear in sources. And while we're starting out with terminology, we may as well begin our discussion of the ghost dance with some definitions. At its most fundamental level, the ghost dance was a religion named for the powerful dance that made up a central component of its observance. The name ghost dance is the one that modern Americans typically use to describe the religion, and it was the one that most Americans used for it in the late 19th century. But Indians called it a number of different things. The command she called it the father's dance. The Kiwa called it the dance with clasped hands. And the Paiute called it dance in a circle. The name the ghost dance comes from the term that many prairie tribes, including the Sioux and the Arapaho used, the spirit or ghost dance. In a way, calling it just the ghost dance is misleading because it wasn't just a dance or a ceremony. It was an entire religious movement with its own teachings, sacraments, and visions of the afterlife. The dance was only one component. Most modern historians, and even James Mooney in 1896, referred to it as the ghost dance religion. 
Which I think is an important distinction to draw, yeah. right? Instead of just, I have always just referred to it as the ghost dance. Right. But I think saying ghost dance religion is, is it's really more, important. It's more all-encompassing. Right. Yeah. The religion originated initially around the year 1870, also emerging from the Paiute Reservation at Walker River, Nevada. The man at the center of the emerging faith was not Wovaka. Wovaka was only a teenager at this point, but a man named Wodziwab or Fish Lake Joe, which I think is just kind of a funny name. Uh, we know very little about Wodziwab other than that he was from Fish Lake, Nevada, um, which is why they called him Fish Lake Joe, and that he had traveled to Walker River sometime before 1870 when the new faith really seemed to take off. Wodziwab prophesied a, quote, return to the old ways with plentiful game and plant food and all Indians living and dead reunited on a renewed earth. The faith was essentially millenarian, which is a uh, theological concept that teaches that with certain behaviors and ceremonies, you can help to usher in a utopian world. So in this case, Wozuab taught that by dancing a particular dance and singing particular songs, Paiutes could return their world to the old ways. Um, And I should say, millenarianism is a theological concept that exists in lots of other religions as well. It's not, you know, exclusive to this. We've talked about it a million times before in uh, regards to the Second Great Awakening, right? It's a major part of the theology of, of the Christian Second Great Awakening. We don't have much detail on his teachings in this early formulation of the religion, but sources do indicate that Wodzawab taught that generations of dead Indians would return to life and come back to the Paiute on trains from the east, and that white people were to be, quote, swallowed up by the earth. Other than this pretty radical aspect, historian Gregory Smoke maintains that everything else was fairly run-of-the-mill for a Paiute faith practice. People of all ages formed a circle, clasped each other's hands, and shuffled around to the left while singing. Round dances like this were very common in Paiute culture, so what set this dance apart was the sought-after result of the dance. A persistent question for historians and anthropologists who have studied this early form of the ghost dance, well, and the later one too, is why did the Paiute, who had a long-standing belief that ghosts were bad omens and dead bodies were taboo disease vectors, suddenly embrace a religion that taught that the dead were going to come back to life, even arriving in their villages by the trainful? One very practical reason might be that Wadziwub wasn't from Walker River, but from Fish Lake, and brought a Fish Lake tradition called the Cry Dance, an annual morning ceremony, to Walker River and applied it to the pre-existing Round Dance, making it essentially a dance that mourned the recently dead, as well as one that looked forward to better times. But historian Lewis Warren looks at the early ghost dance religion by zooming way out and considering the social and cultural things that may have influenced Wozibob and the Walker River Paiutes in the late 1860s and early 1870s. For instance, the Paiute tribe had dispersed from their traditional organization structure, which emphasized tight social bonds within small communities in search of food and stability. <laughs> The fact that Wazuwab joined the Walker River settlement from another area is evidence of exactly this. The ghost dance promised well-being and community, things that the Paiute were craving in a period of social instability and disruption. 
Lewis Warren also points out that two seemingly small parts of Wodziwab's teachings are actually really profound. First, that the Indian dead would arrive by train and that the white Americans would descend into the earth. America was industrializing and the West along with it. The Transcontinental Railroad was finished in 1869, bringing trains through the Paiute territory for the first time ever. Trains no doubt loomed large in the imaginations of Paiute people in 1869 and 1870. And what's more, Warren argues, white men were descending into the earth. They were mining all over, including in Virginia City, just 80 or so miles northwest of the Walker River Reservation. And I want to quote Lewis Warren directly here on just why this was so important. He says this, these real world resonances may make the prophecies seem naive, but these fragments of the original visions that come down to us through the record may have had a symbolic meaning. Indians would be saved, uh, in parentheses, the resurrected dead signifying the restored health of Indian community and culture by engaging modern industry or riding the train, just as so many were attempting to do. So the religion was not just about a return to the past. It was about bringing the old ways along with them into the future. The 1870 ghost dance originated by Wodziwub traveled through Paiute and neighboring communities, but it didn't really stick around. A ghost dance evangelist named Frank Spencer brought the practice with him through California and Oregon into the northern bands of the Paiute and Modoc, for instance. But even by 1872, the initial enthusiasm had faded. There's some debate about how far it traveled and how long it lasted. But either way, if it remained, it wasn't a major force either among the Paiute or other tribes after the mid-1870s. Wodziwab himself died in 1872, but what the prophet began was destined to live on. Because Wovica lived in Walker River when Fish Lake Joe was sharing his visions, met the prophet, performed the early ghost dances, and was deeply influenced by these experiences. According to James Mooney's description of their conversation in 1892, Wovica was born in around uh, 1855 and was the son of a Paiute petty chief and medicine man named Tavibo, or an English white man. When his father died, Wovica went to live with a white farmer named David Wilson, which is how he got his English name, Jack Wilson. Mooney also points out, and I think it's a compelling point, that Wovica was the son of white man and also the son of a literally white man. Wovica seems to have had a signature style that included a broad-brimmed hat and a tall crown portion, so kind of maybe like a 10-gallon hat, but with a wide, flat brim. Um, And we know this because he was photographed many times, all wearing similar hats. And one of the photographs was taken when he was about 19 or 20 years old, standing amid several white Americans. And he's already wearing this hat. So a quick aside here. Yeah. He became so well known for wearing this peculiar hat. It's Mm -hmm. like a very wide flat brim and just like a super tall but it, middle that's section. not wasn't that more like a style of a typical oh, yeah. cowboy hat during the time it probably yeah okay. and it's and i don't think it's an unusual hat it's okay. just that it becomes like his, his signature style. hat okay gotcha that like later on even like after wounded knee he's mm-hmm. like people still consider him a prophet like the the religion doesn't go away yeah and so people like will write to him asking for miracles 
And one of the things they always want is an article, like something that he owned or an article of his clothing because it's like a tangible Mm -hmm. connection to him. And so he starts this like, it's like a relic. Exactly. He starts this trade in selling his hat. (laughs) And so what he does is he'll like charge 20 bucks for the hat and he'll send it to them. And the 20 bucks is like exactly the amount he needs to go buy a new hat. hat. So it's just like this cycle of hats, which I thought was wonderful. (laughs) The 1870s were hard for the Paiute. Regional economic hopes hung on the Comstock Lode, a vein of silver that had been discovered by Americans in 1859 and that had been mined heavily ever since. By the late 1870s and the early 1880s, it was becoming clear that silver mining was not what it once was, leaving miners, as well as the many businesses and service people who depended on them, struggling to make ends meet. Nevada's population began to fall as people fled the state looking for better opportunities. According to Lewis Warren, by 1890, it was, quote, the most poorly inhabited state in the Union, with 44,000 residents scattered in small settlements across 110,000 square miles of sagebrush and creosote. I had to look up creosote because to me, creosote is like what lives in your chimney. Right, or on the boat dock or whatever. Right, like it's like that greasy, like, residue. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a bush. Okay. Yeah. All right, Westerners. Sure. In 1889, the New York Times called it a dying state. With a depressed economy and a tiny population, things were dire for the Paiute in Nevada. They had, of necessity and in keeping with American expectations of them, become enmeshed in the new economy, working in or around mines or working on ranches. One just good example of this, there was a lot of cattle ranching in Nevada. And in fact, it was the only sector that was growing um, in the 70s and 80s. And sometimes the Paiute might work as ranch hands. But because ranching was open range at the time, meaning that cows just basically did whatever the they wanted um beep yeah right there really wasn't much demand for labor like they don't need a lot of cowboys to like watch the 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 cattle right um but on the flip side the cattle are destroying bunch grass which is a hardy plant that produced seeds that the Paiute collected for food Cattle ate the grass, of course, so they're destroying it in that sense. But they also trampled it so thoroughly that it made it hard for the seeds to germinate for new grasses to come up in the spring. So they're destroying it for seasons to come. Cattle also destroyed other plant foods, including buckberry and grass bulbs. With overgrazing came problems with soil erosion, which affected rivers and streams, killing off mussel and fish populations. I mean, there's a reason that that um, Wovica is called Fish Lake Joe. It's because, you know, there's this community around Fish Lake and the Paiute are known for fishing. So this yeah. is another way they supported themselves. It was becoming increasingly necessary for the Paiute to live off of the American population, meaning they needed to work for the cash to buy American supplies. But at the same time, that population was shrinking and work was becoming more and more scarce. The fate of the Paiute had become completely contingent on the fate of the Americans in Nevada. As Sarah Winnemucca, a well-known Paiute advocate at the time, said, If the white people leave us to go over the mountains to California, we must go over the mountains with them too, or else starve. Wow. So this was the context in which Wovica came into manhood and which he experienced his first visions. In the late 1880s, most scholars disagree over whether it was 1887 or 1889, Wovica began to have visions or dreams, as one acquaintance called them. 
His body would go stiff, and he would be fully in a trance, sometimes for hours or even days at a time. After one of these trances, Wovica shared that he had traveled through the stars to heaven and had been stunned by the beauty of what he'd seen. The land was teeming with game and fish and populated by both white and Indian people who had all been restored to youth. Everyone was dancing, playing games, and walking together. After his first vision, he returned many times and eventually began to shape what he learned into a message he could share with other Indians. It was possible to bring this vision of heaven to earth, he preached, but in order to do it, Indians must not fight. There must be peace all over the world. This is a quote. The people must not steal from one another, but be good to each other, for they are all brothers. Wovica also began to organize large gatherings to perform a version of the Paiute Round Dance. These dances were much larger, more frequent, and performed only at night. And instead of being accompanied by drums or other music as round dances often were, they were accompanied only by singing. The songs were likely written by Wovica himself, at least at first, and often invoked spirits in the form of weather. One went like this, fog, 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 lightning, lightning, whirlwind, whirlwind, the snowy earth comes gliding, the snowy earth comes gliding. As the ghost dance became more and more popular at the close of the decade, the weather was drying out and the native plants were more or less gone. And as Wovica began to perform spectacles, and depending on your perspective, you might call them miracles or you might call them boo-ha, which is a Paiute word for kind of a practical joke or a spectacle. Um, some of these boo-ha revolved around raising the dead. For instance, he once uh, handed his brother a shotgun and ordered his brother to shoot him. And his brother complied. Mm-hmm. And there were holes in Wovica's shirt and there was shot. Uh, around his feet, but he himself was unharmed. But the most common miracle involved weather. Wovica was known for bringing about clouds and making it rain. Over and over again, Wovica conjured ice specifically. Sometimes it would appear in his hands. They say after his first vision, when he came to out of his stiffness and his trance, he had ice in his hands. Mm Other times it would be floating in neighboring streams. At other times it would fall in these like giant blocks from the sky. Once uh, this ice that he had conjured fell and landed in a wash basin, the watching crowds stood around and waited for the ice to melt. And then they all drank it reverently in this really interesting sort of call to like holy water. Right. So many Paiutes essentially they called bullshit. And they pointed out that these tricks were easily disproven. But historian Lewis Warren says that actually it is far less important whether they were miracles or not, but what kinds of things Wovica tried to conjure. Ice was a symbol of his ability to affect the weather. And dang, did the Paiute need rain. Another quote here, snow and ice figured prominently in Wilson's displays of power because Buha is imminent in frozen water. I had to look up that word, too, but it's correct. Imminent means, like, dwelling within. With, okay. Isn't All right. that interesting? It, well, and, okay. It's All like right. there's two different word vision, versions of the word yes. imminent. There's okay. I-M-M-I and I-M-M-A. Yes. So, Buha is imminent in frozen water, meaning it kind of lives within frozen water, which promises redemption from thirst. Melting ice signifies not only the benevolent spirits of the high mountain peaks, but the emergence from winter and the beginnings of earthly renewal. 
Wilson, or Wovaka, thus appealed to customary Paiute spiritualism, the buha of the weathermaker harnessed to the power of water, but also to those who drank from the well of Christian symbolism, in particular holy water and baptism. So it wasn't just the Indians who needed rain. The dry weather in Nevada was just one part of a drought across the West during the 1880s. And white Americans were also trying to conjure rain. Frank Melbourne, the quote-unquote rain king of Kansas, took folks' money and released fumes into the sky that were supposed to make it rain. And the Interstate Artificial Rain Company, among other artificial rain companies, tried to conjure rain by releasing chemicals into the sky. Real things. Real things. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, all that to say that, like, we can laugh at Wovica for, like, imagine he could conjure rain. But, like, Americans were actually also trying to conjure rain. Like, everyone's trying to do this. Yeah, 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 yeah. So along with conjuring weather and preaching peace to bring about a utopian vision, Wovica also implored his followers to work. One version of Wovica's message, recorded by a Cheyenne man named Black Short Nose, said, quote, do not refuse to work for the white man, while another stated that Indians should, quote, work for white men. Lewis Warren even goes so far as to say that, quote, for Wovica, wage work was a holy commandment because it's within the teachings of this religion. Hmm. And this is one of the things about Lewis Warren's book, God's Red Sun, that just really like blew my gourd. Um, Warren makes this argument that this was Wovica making a very progressive argument to reconcile the Paiute to the changes that were inevitably coming with the things that Americans were wreaking on the Western landscape. Mm -hmm. He exhorted them to work, but he also told them it's going to be okay. Things are changing, but we're going to go together into this future and things will be good. He came up with a system where dances took place every three months, giving people regular community gatherings to come together for prayer and comfort. Fundamentally, Warren argues, the ghost dance religion was a progressive message. Wovica is taking what Wodziwob taught before, that like the white people are going to go away and Indians, um, all the dead Indians are going to come back. That's still part of the message. Yeah. Like during the 1870 ghost dance enthusiasm, the religion soon began to travel beyond the Paiute. The tribe that becomes most famously associated with the religion is not the Paiute, which is strange considering they originated it, but the Lakota Sioux, well over a thousand miles to the east in the Dakota Territory, soon to be South Dakota. Like the Paiute, the 1870s and 80s were difficult decades. For over a century, the Lakota were known as a very large and powerful tribe. The horse, which first arrived with the Spanish in the 15 and 1600s and made their way to the Lakota by the 1700s, transformed the tribe's ability to cover terrain and perform the task most central to their survival, their culture, and their spirituality. Following and hunting bison. The Lakota were a mobile tribe spread out and traveling across huge tracts of what is now Minnesota, Nebraska, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, and the Dakotas. But by the 1870s, the train was threatening all of this just as it had the Paiutes. The train made it possible for Americans to arrive in what had once been extremely remote Lakota territory. Some of the land, particularly the Nebraska Territory, was enticing to Americans for its agricultural potential, but Americans also came to the region to mine, ranch, and hunt buffalo. 
including our favorite Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, he does his little stint out. It's in. The, is it in the Dakotas? I thought. I think so. I'm pretty sure yeah. it is. So one result was an environmental disaster. Again, so similar to the situation that faced the Paiute. The buffalo, which was so integral to the Lakota culture, rapidly disappeared. And the population dropped because heavy cattle ranching interfered with their rangeland. And because people broke up their land into farms by stringing up barbed wire fences, which famously closed the West. Right, quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah, but they really dropped because American men really liked to shoot them. And shoot them and shoot them and shoot them. Mm-hmm. So the population of Buffalo plummeted from something like 30 million in 1790 to about 5 million during the 1870s to less than 300 in 1889. The last buffalo hunts, at least among the band of the Lakota that Warren focused on, which was the Brule or Sikaju Lakota, took place in 1883. The population drop of the buffalo. I think is one of the things in American history never, ever stops packing a punch. No, no. It's so, So it's so striking. In less than 19 years, they go from 5 million to 300. Yeah. I mean, bonkers. Yeah. And there are pictures I know that you've seen of this um, that I show when I teach about this and I'll put on the, in the show notes, but of like men standing, white men standing in front of just literal mountains of, buff- of, of buffalo dead, bones yeah, yeah. or of buffalo um, skins. Hides right. And, yeah. Um, or seeing the bodies like littered across the, the, the prairie. Yeah. And it's, know? this is all, you know, um, goes along with the train, right? Cause it would just literally just men would just ride the train and like shoot Buffalo out the, window. out the windows. Yeah. Um, it's like, I don't know. Imagine being in like a city and like a flock of pigeons and just like mowing them down, like yeah. seeing like, Thousands of pigeons, like, right. laying all over the Like, just in piles and like, piles. Like, yeah. Like that's how it was. And it's, I mean, yeah, it, it's just so, it's so stunning to me. And and they'll never come back. They can't come back because we've made a West in which they we can't, can't really have yeah. the bu- buffalo herds roam. that we once had. They can't roam. We can't, yeah, the buffalo can't roam. Nor can the deer and the antelope. No. They can't play either. No, the deer and the antelope so can't do it. All right. Anyway. Because Americans coveted Lakota lands, they began to move to get their hands on it during the middle of the century. Now, remember, sorry, my husband's texting me and saying, what's the plan for dinner? I don't fucking know, brother. Make some goddamn like, food. Figure it out. <laughs> okay. Now, remember, the Nebraska Territory, of which, you know, the, the most northern reaches of the Nebraska Territory um, is Lakota land. That is literally one of the factors that leads to the Civil War. So, like, people are very hyper-focused on what to do with this land. In 1851, the U.S. government and several Great Plains tribes signed the Treaty of Fort Laramie, which began to determine the land that would be designated Indian Territory, although it doesn't set strict borders or establish a reservation. Just 17 years later, in 1868, the U.S. government and the Lakota Sioux, plus a couple others, negotiate another treaty of Fort Laramie, which is very confusing when you are writing about this. It's like the Treaty of Paris. Yeah. And it's then like the other Treaty of Paris and then the yeah, other Treaty like of Paris. Yeah, there's like 15 treaties of Paris. <laughs> Uh, this treaty of Fort Laramie did create real borders by establishing the Great Sioux Reservation, a 25 million acre plot of land, which is literally half of South Dakota. It's the western half of South Dakota. 
Now, 25 million acres sounds like a lot of land. A little bit. But, like, it's not a lot of land when you're, like your territory was what we would consider multiple states. Like yeah. everything from Montana to like Oregon, <laughs> Oregon, Oregon was Oregon. Lakota territory, right? So yeah. this is really not much. Massive. In exchange for limiting their lands to this reservation, the government promised to set up agencies around the reservation where agents of the U.S. government would oversee Indian life, try to keep them under control and under supervision, and distribute rations. But the Great Reservation wasn't enough for the Americans. It's never enough for yeah. the Americans, right? The Lakota and neighboring tribes continued to hunt, meaning they continued to live a nomadic lifestyle. To Americans, this looked wasteful. All that great grazing and growing land just sitting there while these primitive people followed around this dwindling buffalo herd, right? That's how Americans are thinking about it. Yeah. Further, in the mid-1870s, reports started to circulate that there was gold in the Black Hills, which is a sacred mountain range. It's sacred to the Lakota um, that's right in the heart of the Great Sioux Reservation. The Lakota refusal to cooperate with blatant treaty violations and land grabs from Americans was what led to the Great Sioux War of 1876 to 1877 between the Lakota, parts of the Cheyenne, and the U.S. Army. And of course, a key moment in this larger war was the Battle of Little Bighorn, in which notorious Pratt, George Armstrong Custer, and his 7th Cavalry were decimated by the Sioux, the Cheyenne, and the Arapaho, uh, in which, you know, this is where 275, you know, members of the 7th Cavalry are butchered. Um, and I think rightfully so <laughs> by those by the, those tribes but while the little bighorn was a resounding lakota victory it was followed by severe retribution from the u.s army by may 1877 lakota war leader crazy horse surrendered to the u.s army and was subsequently killed by them they were forced into the great sioux reservation and when the u.s government threatened to stop distributing rations the Lakota Sioux were essentially forced to cede the Black Hills to the U.S. Sitting Bull, another Lakota war leader, took his band of Hunkpapa Lakota uh, and refused to surrender to the Americans. Instead, they fled to Canada. Um, but when his people starved there, too, they eventually made their way back into the reservation. By the late 1880s, most Lakota were surviving through a blend of subsistence agriculture, something that the Lakota had never practiced before, and it's, you know, sort of hard to nail without experience, right. and through government rations. Some Lakota were able to eke out a living farming or other enterprises, such as grinding buffalo bones into fertilizer or attempts to lease out grazing lands. But it was a hard scrabble existence that, by design, made the Lakota largely dependent on the Indian agencies and, by extension, the U.S. government. In 1887, things became yet worse for the Lakota with the passage of the Dawes Severalty Act, a.k.a. the Dawes Act. This law was spearheaded by Senator Henry L. Dawes of Massachusetts, who sat on the board of Indian commissioners who had been tasked in 1869 with working on what came to be called the quote-unquote Indian problem. Dawes was genuinely concerned with the problem of Indians 
again, quote, which he figured should be much easier to solve than many of the other problems facing Gilded Age America. After all, he reasoned, with millions of immigrants knocking at the gates and millions of black Americans in the Jim Crow South, why shouldn't we be able to easily solve a problem of just 300,000 people? He literally says that. Gross. He's like, we've got these much larger problems. Like, this shouldn't be an issue. Gross. Yeah, it is. It is very gross. Dawes' eventual solution in the form of the Dawes Act, as Elizabeth said, is to come up with a way to force the Indian population to assimilate to American ways of living. The Dawes Act had several components, but the nutshell version is that it gave each Indian head of household an allotment of 160 acres on which to start a farm. The land, each of those 160 acre sections, was to be held in trust by the United States government for 25 years because the Indians couldn't be trusted to just have the land. They needed, you know, smart people to take care of it for them. The Dawes Act is just a like whole bunch of horribleness. And I really want to get to how the ghost dance religion factors in. So I'm not going to elaborate on the veritable chamber of horrors that this piece of legislation was. But the Dawes Act has a double effect. On the one hand, people like Henry Dawes get to pat themselves on the back for, quote unquote, solving the Indian problem by giving Indians land and encouraging them to assimilate into the American populace. On the other hand, the act is literally designed to destroy tribal governance and organization by forcing Indians to adopt nuclear family units, restructure gender roles by demanding male heads of household, allowing the American government to seize all of the reservation land that isn't used to fulfill the allotments and resell it, um, establishing a system of discrimination based on full blood and mixed bloods in which full bloods received less land in land of poorer quality and all of this resulting in seizing Indian children from their families and tribes, stripping them of their native languages, cutting off their hair and forcing them to become as much like white Americans as possible. Right. Like these are all of the other things that go along with the Dawes Act. Oh, And this is all while still treating all Indians like garbage, because as much as they assimilate, as much as they take on all of the hallmarks of American life, cut their hair, speak English, they can't get white. So they're never actually going to be welcomed into the American populace. Right. Um, And I just want to kind of pause here for one second to say, and I think I've talked about this actually on the, the podcast before a long time ago. I had this conversation with a student once sort of stopped me in my tracks as I was talking about this in a, a, a survey class. And the, the student, we were talking about the Nez Perce mm-hmm. and um, the reading, I read the famous Chief Joseph quote about, I will fight no more forever, which I can never get through without like sort of choking uh. up. Um, and the student was like, why didn't the army just let them go to Canada? Mm. Because then they would like, be off the land. Right. And they'd be not the Americans problem anymore. So like, why not just let them go? Like, why chase them for thousands of miles? And I, I actually had to stop and be like, wow, I've, I've never asked that question. I have, I have no idea. And I had to think about it for a long time. And I asked a bunch of people who are smarter than me to kind of help me think through it. And um, the answer is because the goal wasn't getting them off the land. The goal was exterminating them. Right. The goal was exterminating them either by literally killing them or by exterminating them through stripping their culture completely so that you couldn't recognize them as Indians anymore. 
Um, what what is the quote like? Uh, something about knits. The lice. yeah, knits make lice. Yeah, that's the Chivington um, General Chivington. I think it's at Sand Creek, right? When he's they're talking about are we gonna are we gonna kill the women and children essentially? Right. And yeah. Chivington just looks at them and says, "Well, knits make lice." Right, extermination. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The the goal was never just get off of the land and let us so, take so it. So we can do what we want. Right. To the with goal this. is go away. Extermination. Forever. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it should come as no surprise then that the Americans were not great at following through with their promises. But once the Lakota were confined to the Great Sioux Reservation, and even after the Dawes Act began to go into effect, the Americans failed to support the Indians with the promised rations. They were always pitiful, but by 1889, as part of the attempts to cut government spending... Effing Grover Cleveland, who Sarah loves. No, he's the worst. And I should say, it might it might have been more Benjamin Harrison than Grover Cleveland, depending on like what month these cuts happened. Okay. But Grover Cleveland's big thing was cutting government spending. Right. So, so yeah, we'll just he is just terrible anyway. So we'll just blame him. All right, more beef. You, you're talking about beef. Okay. All right, more more life. Oh, beef. You, you're talking about beef. The ration allotments were cut by 10%. This meant millions of pounds of beef for several of the remaining reservations. In Washington, as well as among average Americans, this seemed like just another belt-tightening measure, similar to how modern conservatives might discuss cutting food stamp funding. They reasoned that government support encouraged Indians to be dependent instead of learning to support themselves through farming and industry. But fundamentally, even legally, these rations were not welfare. They were part of a settled-upon exchange. The government effectively said, give us this land and we will take care of you with rations. So either way, the rations were getting smaller and smaller, and the effect was that the Lakota were weak, sick, and suffering. At the same time, Indian agents were starting to outlaw religious ceremonies that they felt were holding Indians back from assimilating. Moreover, the ceremonies allowed Indians to reinforce their tribal bonds, gather in large numbers, and Americans feared gave them opportunities to plot. Sounds like like a slave. Exactly. Yeah. I thought the same thing. Yeah. yeah. So, for instance, the traditional Lakota sun dance in which Lakota men and women cut and pierced their bodies and danced to bring on a translate state in which they might experience visions was outlawed in 1883 at the Rosebud Agency. Right. Rosebud is one of the agencies within the ah. Great Sioux Reservation yeah. or what what was at one point the Great Sioux Reservation. Another aside here. But And there are multiple versions of this story, but um, this is one of the times and places that's credited for being the birth of the Indian staple food, which is fry bread. Have you ever had fry bread? Fry bread is amazing. Fry bread is so good um, because it was a way for Indians to stretch their meager flour rations into high calorie food by making it basically into dough and frying it. And there are different versions of fry bread, like As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Many different Indian nations have their own, like, version of fry bread. So mm-hmm. the Cherokee, um, I've read, have, like, cornmeal versions. Because okay. on the the trip from, like, Georgia to Oklahoma, they were given cornmeal as their rations. Hmm. The Navajo make tacos out of them. Like, okay. I want to eat a Navajo taco <laughs> so bad. It sounds so good. Um, and actually, fry bread is sort of controversial because for, like, 100 years now, it's been kind of a staple food right but now many indians are kind of saying why are we eating this colonialist garbage really like yeah yeah. and and i mean it is fried garbage exactly and so there's lots of health problems on there's already lots of health problems on reservations Mm -hmm. and now much of the food that they've had because of the food they've had access to is very unhealthy right and it has kind of the overtones of colonialism with it and so this kind of fry bread has become this kind of weird like um flashpoint yeah i can imagine yeah it's not healthy at it's all. not healthy but it is also very delicious no, i get it at the erie county fair from the seneca nation oh like section yeah yeah there. yeah that's the only time i'd never you know being from texas never had that before i right. mean i'm assuming somewhere there's the cornmeal version or whatever yeah. i just had never until i moved up here yeah, yeah. i had it's it it's very good i've had it a couple times um I can't remember the first time I had it, but I, I think I had it when I was in college. There was some sort of um, Haudenosaunee like ceremony at yeah. our at our college, um, but then I went to the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington D.C. as part of the Smithsonian's, yeah, and they have the best cafe. Like if you're ever in D.C., like you should just go and eat there, even if you don't go to the museum, which you should because it's amazing. But their cafe is fantastic and they has like sections there's like a section for each tribal group so oh. there's like a pacific northwest yeah. there's a plains there's northeast <laughs> and the foods change all the time and they have like indian chefs that design the menus right. but then they have another part of the cafe that like no matter what the other ones are serving they always serve fry bread mm-hmm. and they have like a million different ways you can have it like you, you can put maple syrup on it and honey on it and I ate a lot of fry bread when I was doing research. And it's getting to be about five o'clock and I am getting very hungry. Yes. And we need to stop talking about So this. we need fry <laughs> Yeah, notice we've spent a lot of time talking about fry bread. Anyway. So we have a situation among the Lakota similar to that among the Paiute. Terrible weather, stolen lands, dying traditions, encroaching Americans, starvation, sickness, and spiritual desperation. This is exactly when, so right in 1889, a young Lakota man named Short Bull is chosen to go with a group of other Lakota men on a sort of pilgrimage to Walker River, which, remember, is in Nevada, Mm -hmm. uh, to meet the prophet. There's a local council of elders, of Lakota elders, and they say to Short Bull, quote, We have a letter from the West saying the father has come, and we want you to go and see him and tell us what he says, and we will do it. Be there with a big heart. Do not fail. Just there's something about the phrase be there with a big heart that sort of crushes me. Keep in mind, this is a journey of well over a thousand miles. So this is a big endeavor. They must have really believed in this, right? Shortbull describes this whole journey with just real reverence. 
And I should say we know about this because he gave an interview um, to uh, a, a trans a translator after Wounded Knee. Okay. It's like an ethnography kind of thing. Kind of. Yeah, yeah kind of. The guy's not an ethnographer. He's just a translator. But I, I'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more later. He So Shortbill gets to Walker River. And he met Wovica, who he who was followed around by crowds of people. Some of them were Paiute and some were other outsiders like Shortbull, who had come just to meet the prophet. And they watched them perform the, the dance. I should say here, Shortbull had a reputation as sort of a brawler. Like he had been. The name Shortbull kind of yeah, sounds like Yeah, yeah. He's actually very handsome. Mm. And he had fought at Little Bighorn. And he was just sort of known to have like a warrior spirit. Like he was known to be kind of tough. Mm-hmm. But the message that Shortbull brings back from Wovica to the Lakota is one of peace. It says this, quote, have your people work the ground so they do not get idle. Help your agents and get farms to live on. Educate your children. Send them to schools. Uh, Wovica begged them to fight no more. He even told them to go to church, Christian churches. Wovica said, all of these churches are mine. So the do- oh, he actually says, goosebumps. like, the denomination doesn't matter. All of these churches are mine. So go to church. I know. it's I There's something very yeah. powerful about this. Lewis Warren calls this the gospel according to Shortbull and emphasizes that there was nothing in it that called for confronting or killing Americans. Now, I should say, all of this, like, this still has the original sort of Wodziwob teaching that the dead Indians are going to come back to life. There's going to be a resurrection Mm -hmm. and that white people are going to go away. Mm -hmm. But it never says they're going to go away because we're going to kill them. Right. Like, they're just going to disappear. And how isn't clear. Maybe they're going to go back east. Maybe we're going to be separated. But some of it is also apocalyptic. Like, maybe the whole world's going to end. And so all of us are going to go away. So nothing about this is aggressive. Later, the Chicago Tribune prints all sorts of things that they say is the principles of the short dance as described by Short Bull. But they're all the opposite of the things that we can be reasonably sure that Short Bull actually said or recorded. Um, And there's corroborating evidence. Another um, Lakota named Big Road gives another interview in which he confirms everything that Short Bull said about peace. And so... Um, Lewis Warren, anyway, is like the Chicago Tribune just made this up. Like they just made it up. One part of the ghost dance that was unique to the Lakota was the ghost shirt, which was a kind of shirt that some Lakota came to believe would stop bullets in the same way that Wovica was able to survive being shot by his brother back in Nevada. Mm-hmm. This becomes a very famous part of the ghost dance in the American imagination. But in reality, it was really only a very small part and it was only within the Lakota communities. No mm-hmm. other tribes had this, this aspect. Yeah. But the ghost dance spreads beyond the Lakota, too. When Short Bull takes his pilgrimage to Walker River, he's accompanied by another sitting bull from the Arapaho, who then brings the ghost dance back to the Arapaho, living in what is now Oklahoma. It spread to the Cheyenne through a woman named Moki, or Little Woman, who had lost both of her children and had been in sort of a fog of grief for years. When she heard of the ghost dance during Moki's first experience, she found herself reunited with her children in her trance. Her husband, Grant Left Hand, was skeptical about the ghost dance's power, but his desire to see his son overrode his skepticism. After experiencing the trance and seeing his son, he was also a convert to the ghost dance religion. 
Moki then went on to write ghost dance songs herself, and Grant Lefthand, her husband, created a version of the ghost dance that was combined with a sacred Arapaho ceremony called the Crow Dance, bringing the new religion into the Arapaho spiritual belief system. And Moki is a good example of how powerful the ghost dance was in the lives of women, promising to reunite them with their children, parents, or other loved ones who had died during the years of sickness, malnutrition, and war. One unnamed Lakota woman wrote a ghost dance song that sums this up briefly but sadly. It is my own child. It is my own child. Oh my god, I'm going to lose it. I know. Isn't that... That that got me too. Yeah, that... There's something really... um, you can see why this appealed to people, right? If mm-hmm. Moki goes about telling people that in her trance, she's reunited with her babies. Um, I can see how that would be powerful. And I, um, it's hard to see women in this sometimes in this history. Right. right. Um, and so I thought that was really powerful too, that this was a way that women um, end up being evangelists for the ghost dance. By mid-1890, the ghost dance was truly a pan-Indian religion, spreading from California to Oklahoma and encompassing several tribes. But while it influenced nearly all Great Basin and Plains tribes, it didn't convince all the Indians in those tribes. The Lakota were split. They were split over the dance and over how much to cooperate with the Americans. In 1889, General George Crook had manipulated several Lakota leaders into signing over their rights to significant remaining portions of the Great Sioux Reservation. And what he does to manipulate them, it's not like they're stupid. He takes them hostage and he says they can't go home until they sign. And then he uses dirty tricks to get the rest of the the signatures he needs. The sale, which let's be real, is really theft of these lands, drove a wedge between the Lakota who were all angry about the land deal. This was followed quickly by the congressional decision that Elizabeth mentioned earlier to cut costs by cutting rations. Suffice it to say, things in Sioux country were bad, but dividing colonized people and turning them against each other is always a good tactic for colonizers. The Americans loved to use Indians as reservation police officers to carry out the wishes of the agents, for instance, and so they were... And they were always ready to listen to a disgruntled Indian who wanted to turn on his tribesmen. One such disgruntled Lakota was William Selwyn. Selwyn had been educated in an Indian school in the East, then returned to the Siouxlands to serve as the postmaster of the Yankton Reservation. And we should say an Indian school is actually a white-run school Correct. to, to yes. turn Indians into quote-unquote white people. Right. This, yeah. is, this is a part of the Dawes Act that I just, right. in, for time, couldn't get into. But right. yeah, we're talking about boarding schools in his case i think it was specifically an episcopalian school where they're taken forcibly from their parents and re-educated and which lends even more to the the lakota woman's song it is my own child right Uh, like they're being their children are being torn from them away from them in multiple multiple ways. ways exactly um So Selwyn began telling E.W. Foster, who was his agent at the Yankton Reservation, outrageous things about the ghost dancers. And historians are still not totally sure what Selwyn's deal was. (laughs) The Americans were already suspicious of the new religion, and they conflated the Lakota who were angry about the land sales with the Lakotas who had taken up the new dance, who were not necessarily all one and the same, right? It's not as if all of the angry... Lakota right. turned to the ghost dance. Like right. They were actually two different populations with overlap, but not necessarily one and the same. And so this made their numbers and 
the potential threat they might have much larger. But Selwyn began telling the agents that there were, quote, secret plans for a general Indian war coming in the spring. This fed into fears the Americans already had that the Indians were planting some sort of ghost dance uprising. Those fears started to spread to newspapers, even newspapers further east, like back in Chicago. That's why the Chicago Tribune is publishing things about mm. Short Bowl, uh, which breathlessly reported that the Western tribes were plotting an uprising and that they believed they were impermeable to bullets wearing their magic shirts. God. This just seemed to cons- confirm that something was brewing. Why wear armor if you're not planning to use it? Right. So key to their fear was the fact that Sitting Bull, the war leader who had helped to defeat the 7th Cavalry in 1876 at Little Bighorn, escaped to Canada but returned in 1881. His mere existence rankled the Americans, who were constantly convinced he was secretly fomenting rebellion. In November 1889, amid rising concerns that a ghost dance outbreak was coming, President Benjamin Harrison ordered the Secretary of War to prepare for the, quote, suppression of any threatened outbreak and to take such steps as may be necessary to that end. Just days later, an agent at Pine Ridge sent a telegram to the Army that said, quote, Indians are dancing in the snow and all are wild and crazy. We need protection and we need it now. Oh, my gosh. So it seemed more likely than ever that something was brewing. General John R. Brooke ordered all Indians in Siouxlands to report to their agency to be accounted for. Many of the Lakota ghost dancers refused to comply and instead began to gather together to escape from the army's increasingly tight grip. And actually, the sense of an impending threat from the army really served to confirm many of the ghost dancers' beliefs. It felt like perhaps the end times were coming. Maybe the fact that the army was beating down on them was just proof that Wovica's message had been true. Now, skeptics, of course, interpreted the evidence to mean exactly the opposite. Right, like your ghost dancing isn't doing anything. Right, right. right. Um, but two ghost dance leaders, Little Wound and Big Road, decided to report to their agent at Pine Ridge, followed by a steady stream of others. But Short Bull was determined to take his followers to survive outside of the government's control. Now, this was easier said than done. The weather was brutal and rations were very short. I, I should say that um, during all of this between um, when Benjamin Harrison says, uh, gives them that sort of order to the Secretary of War to prepare for a suppression of a threatened outbreak, this ends up becoming the biggest army mobilization since the Civil War. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah. And we're talking about. Essentially, or eventually, I should say, by the time they get to Wounded Knee, 300 Indians. God. Yeah. Sort of inexplicably, in mid-December, Standing Rock agent James McLaughlin decided to arrest the Lakota Sitting Bull. And I say the Lakota Sitting Bull because there's two Sitting Bulls. Uh There's the Arapaho Sitting Bull and the Lakota Sitting Bull. Um, Using the threat, in quotes, of the ghost dance as his justification. Sitting Bull wasn't even into the ghost dance. He was actually very dismissive of the more mystical parts. And he said that it was sort of a distraction and a waste of time that he believed would just pass in time. But McLaughlin hated Sitting Bull and saw this as his opportunity to strike. So he sent Indian police to arrest Sitting Bull. And in an ensuing shuffle, Sitting Bull ends up getting shot. 
Now, it, it would seem at first blush like this was an accident because there's kind of a feud that has been brewing between one of the Indian police officers and one of Sitting Bull's friends. Yeah. And so at first it's kind of it seems as though, oh, this guy is just taking it as his opportunity to shoot this guy he's been fighting with. Yeah. Like he's got this feud, right? But then the police off the Indian police officer goes over to where Sitting Bull has fallen onto the ground incapacitated and shoots him again. Um, severing his spine and killing him. Right. Unsurprisingly, Sitting Bull's followers panic and try to fight back, which serves as the the spark for the nearby 8th Cavalry, who's kind of encamped around the Sitting Bull's encampment, Mm -hmm. to start firing on the entire camp. And they have cannons. So they just start lobbing shells into the camp. Followers scattered, but not before some of Sitting Bull's closest followers and his beloved teenage son, Crowfoot, are killed. One of the last to resist returning to report to the agencies was Bigfoot, a ghost dance leader with a small band of Minikanju and some uh, Hunk Papa Lakota. They were tired, cold, and hungry, and Big- Bigfoot had pneumonia. Too exhausted to keep resisting, Bigfoot had more or less surrendered to the 7th Cavalry and were being escorted back to Pine Ridge. On the night of December 28th, they camped on the bank of Wounded Knee Creek. In the morning, Colonel James Forsythe of the 7th Cavalry called for a council with the men of the band. Nearly all of the men in the small band, which was no larger than 350 Indians, including elderly people, women, and small children, came to the council, bringing with them some young boys wearing American-style school uniforms. The soldiers, of which there were 470 total, lined up in front of the men. The women and the children were on the other side of the soldiers on the banks of the Creek Ravine. Forsyth ordered Bigfoot to hand over all the weapons in the camp. Bigfoot complied, but when Forsyth saw that the guns were old and some non-functioning, he grew convinced the Indians must be hiding more. When no more guns were produced, he ordered his men to begin searching the Lakota's belongings. Now, technically, Forsyth was going against his orders from the general in charge of the campaign against the ghost dancers, General Nelson Miles, who had expressly said to keep the soldiers away from interacting directly with the Indians. Even after rifling through their belongings, Forsyth only churned up a few more weapons, but he still wasn't convinced he had everything. Bigfoot, growing increasingly weak, ordered his followers to hand over everything they had, and a couple of young men, frustrated with the soldiers, did produce hidden guns. The stories of this are just horrific because Bigfoot is extremely sick, and he's He's getting like paler Ugh. and weaker and his nose starts bleeding during this because he's just, I mean, I can't imagine like the stress of this right. plus this pneumonia plus the malnutrition, right? There was one such young man um, among these kind of more disgruntled younger men who are frustrated with the soldiers uh, named Black Coyote. Black Coyote was deaf. And the Lakota, among many other Plains tribes, did use sign language to communicate regularly. But in the stressful moment, no one had signed to Black Coyote what was going on. So Black Coyote is kind of seeing the scuffle and he shouts because he's deaf that he didn't want to hand over his gun because it had been expensive and he had paid for it. A soldier reached out and tried to snatch the gun, but Black Coyote hung on to it. The gun went off. The shot flew harmlessly into the sky, doesn't hit anyone, but the jolt of the concussion made Forsyth act, and he began to yell, fire, fire on them. 
and that's all it took. The soldiers, who far outnumbered the Indians, opened up their significant firepower on the now completely disarmed Lakota. Most of the men, because they're in that circle right around the, the soldiers, died right away. But some of them tried to run into the ravine where the rest of the followers were waiting. And all that did was bring the fire, the gunfire with them, right? right. Because they're, they're kind of tracking the men as they go. The soldiers then start to use their Hotchkiss gun, which is sort of a light cannon, on the Lakota in the ravine, who are mostly women and small children. Literally many of them infant, carrying nursing infants yeah. or pregnant women. Soldiers picked off people one by one as they tried to escape or even as wounded people um, tried to move, right? There's instances where they're kind of walking around and looking to see who is still alive and shooting them. Eventually, a shout went out that it was safe for survivors to now surrender. Bigfoot, who somehow escaped the first volley, sat up, probably in some attempt to surrender himself. A soldier shot him dead. His daughter ran to him, and then the soldier shot her, too. Within 40 minutes, the shooting was done in the camp on the Wounded Knee Creek. But for hours, soldiers rode around the surrounding area looking for escapees and shooting them, too. Every man, woman, and child. They hunt them down and shoot them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to give... Um, a first-hand account of this from a Lakota named Black Elk. Black Elk becomes very famous after Wounded Knee. Um, and he writes, or he um, can, works with an ethnologist to write a book, which is now called Black Elk Speaks, which is really powerful, mm-hmm. but has also been heavily criticized because they are, scholars now are fairly sure that the ethnographer, ethnologist who worked with him, like, embellished it and Mm -hmm. and translated it in ways that made it much more lyrical Mm -hmm. but either way it's it's poignant so i'm going to read it Mm -hmm. i did not know how much was ended when i look back now from this high hill of my old age i can still see the butchered women and children lying heaped and scattered all along the crooked gulch as plain as when i saw them with eyes young and i can see that something else died there in the bloody mud and was buried in the blizzard A people's dream died there. It was a beautiful dream. The nation's hope is broken and scattered. There is no center any longer, and the sacred tree is dead. Wounded Knee has, like, been living in my head for, like, this whole week. So, like, this is, like, really f***ing my shit off. (laughs) I I have seen professors cry when giving this lecture yeah, it, numerous times it i mean yeah, right now ter- i'm kind of having a hard time keeping me it too. together so. yeah okay that's why it was hard to get through that quote the 7th cavalry were adamant that the shooting was the fault of the lakota who had been militant religious radicals so they said right but as lewis warren points out the shooting only broke out because an indian rightfully demanded that he be compensated if the army seized a gun that was his private property and this was exactly the kind of thing that americans wanted Concepts of individual property ownership and an emphasis on cash. Even think of the little boys in their school uniforms, dressed like Americans and acquiescing to the demands to attend boarding schools. And it makes it all the more clear that assimilation was never going to be enough, even when Indians acted like Americans. Even when they did what the Americans wanted, they were massacred. 
On the flip side, those who thought the massacre was abhorrent tended to see it as a murder of innocence, not in the sense that they were guiltless, which they were, but in the sense that Indians were hopelessly naive and unable to change with the times. It seems like the ultimate proof to them of the vanishing Indian, uh, incompatible with the modern America, and so destined to die out in one way or another. When newspaper photographers arrived, they took photographs of frozen corpses covered in snow, left unburied days after the massacre. Eventually, they would all be thrown into a mass grave by civilians hired by the army. Just to interject here once again, this episode has lots of interjections, but I've heard people make this exact argument about Native Americans, like sitting over dinners. I've heard. Yeah, I've heard people say. Well, they just weren't, they weren't keeping up with changing, the like changing times. modern day people yes. saying this? I was at a dinner with modern Americans saying. Oh my God, you need new friends. Well, <laughs> let's, let's just make it clear they were not my friends. I just was forced to have dinner with them. And yeah, making this exact argument. These, these were people who were just of the past and Americans were the future and they weren't able to keep up. If they had wanted to keep their land, they should have been um, more advanced yeah it's uh, it's it's a belief that people still have most stories about the ghost dance end here and actually in most of our survey classes the ghost dance and wounded knee is where we stop teaching native american history wounded knee has come to serve as a kind of bookend for indian history columbus on one end wounded knee on the other and like how problematic is that yeah right And I think that that's because it feels like such a clear ending to the decades of land grabs and wars that make up what we often call the Indian Wars. And I am very guilty of this myself. When I teach my survey course, I like to lean on narratives. Like, it's just how I, you'll notice this in my episodes, right? Mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm a narrative historian and have narrative arcs even in my lectures. So I tend to tell a story of doomed resistance that ends in a massacre at Wounded Knee. Yeah. But then what that does, as I grappled with, as I was reading for this episode, is that it plays into exactly what Americans wanted out of this entire struggle. They wanted a docile, controlled, and ultimately exterminated, either literally or figuratively, race that could essentially just move out of the way for American progress. And isn't that often the story that we tell in teaching? When we shift, like I'm thinking of my um, survey, right. I shift from talking about Wounded Knee and then I go directly to the Gilded Age. Right. Right. And this like booming technological change and big business. Right. Yeah. We know from past episodes that there was a little bit of panic in the 19th century about the idea of the vanishing Indian, at, at the very least among ethnologists and early anthropologists. But that's what Americans wanted. So we vanished them physically by shunting them onto reservations and destroying their culture, and then finally by disappearing them even from our history after 1890. Right. They just go away. Yeah, And that's what's so perverse about this, is that at the same time, Americans loved Indians, right? They right. went in droves to Buffalo Bill's Wild West shows to watch subdued, colonized Indians reenact battles and perform a kind of Indianness for them within safe confines. So take, for example, the post-Wounded Knee story of Short Bull. 
after Wounded Knee, Short Bull, as one of Wovica's disciples, was deemed a threat, and along with a few other Lakota men, were hauled off to Chicago and thrown into the newly constructed Fort Sheridan, built to ensure there was a heavy military presence in Chicago in case of labor unrest. After some months in confinement, who showed up at the fort but Buffalo Bill himself, asking if he could take the prisoners to be part of a European tour of the show. Now, because it was probably considerably better than sitting in a military fortification, the men agreed. Can I pause you there? I was interested in when I was reading this bit that it, it that's how it's kind of framed. The men agreed. I don't know. What, I mean, the army must know, have been involved they had in that to, conversation. I was just thinking that too. Yeah. But it wasn't clear in the sources okay. I had. Right. All, all parties apparently agreed Everybody because they agreement. went. Yes. There you go. So... Um, so many years later, Short Bull appeared with Cody in a film called The Indian Wars. The film included a reenactment of Wounded Knee, but uh, assuming it left out the frozen corpses of children in the snow, right? They, they filmed the, so, a reenactment uh, yeah, of Wounded Knee. Yeah, that's disgusting. It doesn't exist anymore, obviously. No, it's, it's yeah. not extant anymore. Yeah, yeah. So this is a theme that we've discussed in several of Sarah's episodes, um, but it's one that bears repeating. Americans love the ideas of Indians, but they hate real Indians, right? Mm -hmm. um, they want to be able to watch uh, the Westerns and sit in sweat lodges and wear feathers and go to Coachella and burn sage. But when real Indians remind us that it violates treaty rights to lay gas pipelines through sacred lands and waters, or when they push back on state governments that refuse to care for stretches of interstate roads between, uh, you know, Indian reservations, mm -hmm. or they resent Indian casino revenue, then they don't like Indians very much. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Cultural appropriation, yeah. all that. No side eye at the New York State government at all there. None at all. <laughs> no. <clears throat> and there's one final thing that I want to say. I was surprised at just how much I got wrong about the ghost dance. I had always felt like I understood this quite well. I, I, I'm glad I, you're saying this because I, reading this, I'm like, ooh, I yeah. had this wrong. <laughs> and, yeah. And this this week, um, really living in this history and like really focusing on it, it's it's been one of those learning experiences where you feel kind of like your brain sort of opening yeah. up because I've been getting this wrong for yeah. my professional career. And I always felt like this was something I was quite kind of adept in. Like mm -hmm. I read Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee um, and was deeply moved by it, as everyone is who reads that book. I include a lot of Native American history in my survey courses and my other courses, but I didn't realize that I never really got the ghost dance until I started reading for this episode. Um, I saw it as this um, religion that was entirely focused on um, white people going away, mm -hmm. the buffalo coming back. Right. A return to the old ways. A return to the old ways. Yeah. As, as being very backward looking. Yeah. Right? Like, this is, we're going to go back to how it was before. That's how I understood it as well. Yeah. And Lewis Warren makes this argument very forcefully that the ghost dance was not the last gasps of a dying culture that was being crushed. It was a progressive, maybe even sort of syncretic religious response to extreme culture, cultural social, political, and even environmental forces. The religion was not at all about killing white people and bringing back the buffalo. It was about finding a way forward in a world that was making the old ways increasingly impossible. Wovica taught Indians to live peacefully, work hard, stop fighting with Americans, stop fighting with, between themselves too, yeah. send their children to school, 
and use the dance to preserve old community bonds and to forge new ones, right? This is a pan-Indian religion. Yeah. For some ghost dancers, it was a way of marrying Christian beliefs, right? Think about Wovica as a messiah, mm-hmm. the, the kind of calls to holy water, unifying themes of a loving father spirit, the exuberant dancing, which is very analogous to Pentecostal worship, to Indian faith systems, right? Which understanding that that these this kind of pan-Indian group coming together, some of them were Christian. And exactly. Some of them, yeah. Yes. Many yeah. of them already were, had been had been in contact with missionaries. Right. Many of them are practicing Catholics. Okay. And so they just, com- this combines so beautifully with their teachings. They think of, not all of them, but many of them think of Wovica as a Christ figure, as mm-hmm. or at the very least as a prophet of God, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe they call God Wakantanka, which is the Lakota word for like the great spirit. But, you know, there is... Well, it's kind of like going back to Wovka's idea of, like, they're all my churches. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Which just slays me. Like, that slays me. Um, Anyway, this was a way of trying to move forward into the future that had already been designed by white Americans and forced upon Indians. Yeah. The dance was never about resistance. It was about finding a new way. It was about hope, not about vengeance. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I I mean, I I understood it. Wrong. As well. uh, yeah. And yeah. I I mean, I hate to say that I'm glad, but I am glad yeah. that like I wasn't um, alone in, in this kind of mis fundamental misreading of what the ghost right. dance was. Right. Also, um, though, 20 people received medal medals of honor for Wounded Knee. Yeah. Wounded Knee is disgusting. And they've never been rescinded. They've never. Oh, no, they've never been rescinded, wow. which is f-ing gross. OK, um. Yeah, that was extremely depressing. I'm sorry, but I think it was also it was a, an important experience for me, and I hope that that others, when you're listening, find it worthwhile. And if you have thoughts to share, please, you know, email us, um, get in touch with us in, in in our Pod Squad or on Facebook or whatever. You can follow us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. You can not really follow us on Instagram. Uh, you can do so many things in your life. We'll talk to you later. Goodbye. Thank you. Remember to review and subscribe. Yeah, Bye. do that too. Yeah. Bye. To Walter River and Walker up. River. God dang it. <laughs> At the same time, Indian agents were startled to out. Start- Starting to At- outlaw. The mountains are lightly brit. <laughs> oh my God, I'm dying. The mountains are lightly. I have to kill myself now. <laughs> It seems clear to most Americans. Oh, it seems clear to. It seems clear. <laughs> hey, I was fine. She wrote it wrong. No, I don't know. It's just your anger. It's the anger that I think is funny. Sorry. It seems. It. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> God damn it. And. I was on drugs when I wrote this sentence. This sentence is eight paragraphs long. <laughs> it's okay, keep going. Even an Indian Jesus Christ with... <laughs> well, I was going to say even an Indian Jesus. And then I saw Christ. <laughs> and then I had to add it on. An Indian Jesus Christ. Even like an Indian Jesus Christ. <laughs>
Oh man, we are like oh, not gonna make so it. much for doing this fast, right? Okay, sorry, hold on. From that Arapaho. Yes. I was surpi I was surprised. Your brain be better when you're looking at screens. Yeah, go away.